Today was kind of a fun day for our little family. Uh, we got to do a child dedications at the 11 o'clock service just now. So we were just on stage, and Eden was doing her thing. And um, Eden's kind of the center of attention in our family. I don't know if you know that. Um, our daughter likes to kind of grab the attention. She's nice. She smiles. So like what we did is we, I said, hey, can you wave to everybody? And she kind of just sat there and started waving. So she's really like good and pretty obedient at this point. Not completely obedient, as some of you kids workers know. Uh, she's not always the best, as what happened on Thursday night. You got to ask the Zalea twins about that. But uh, yeah, she's pretty good most of the time. And one of the things she likes to do is copy you. So like if you do something, if you look at her and let's say like you put your hand out, she wants to put her hand out. And she'll like smack your hand. She'll give you a high five. If you look her in the eyes and you shake your head really hard uh, and smile, she'll do the same thing. She shakes her head and she gets all off balance and dizzy. And it's really cute. Um, there's a lot of things that she does that are kind of copycat-like things. One, ha- one thing that happened yesterday morning was when we were making coffee at the espresso machine at our house. Uh, she's down below the machine with this mug. And she was like messing with the mug. And I thought, oh no, is she like messing up the mug or something so I look down and she's taking this little brush thing and putting it in the coffee cup and just stirring it around like what mama does she's stirring it around and making noise and just playing but it's kind of cute right she's always wanting to imitate what we do and that's what kids do kids imitate their parents and in fact you're going to find that maybe uh, some some of you won't like this fact that you will talk and walk and think and do a lot of things like your parents the older you get it doesn't just happen when you're a little kid. Maybe when you're a kid, it's purposeful, and you're trying to be like mom and dad. But even when you're older, you end up living a lot like mom and dad because they made such a big influence on you. Now, God's Word says that everyone who is led by the Spirit of God, every Christian, is a child of God. Romans 8 says that. And in our text today, it's going to say in Ephesians 5 that if you are a child of God, one of your responsibilities and one of my responsibilities is that you and I imitate God, that we, in our lifestyle and our hearts, need to look more and more like God himself. Now, that's something you probably heard at church before. That's a very basic concept, but I want you to see where this is found in Ephesians chapter 5, because it's really helpful that of all the things that we're called to imitate in God, there's one quality that comes up here as the primary and most important thing for each and every one of us. Check it out. Ephesians chapter 5. We looked at chapter 4 last time. Roy finished the the section by looking at verses 31 and 32, which are all about the Christian's heart and how we should give up things like bitterness and wrath and clamor and slander and all malice, that that kind of stuff should be pushed out of our hearts and out of our lives as Christians. And then verse 32 last time says that instead of that, we need to be kind to one another and tender-hearted. So our hearts need to be in this, not some kind of fake uh, religiosity where we kind of pretend to be, you know, Jesus people or something like that, and there's no true change in the inside. He says, no, starts from the heart. You got to be tender-hearted, and you also need to forgive one another. It's really hard to do when you feel like people have wronged you to willingly let go of the debt against them and to embrace them back as a brother or a sister. That's really, really hard to do. And he says, that's what we need to do. Why? Because God in Christ forgave you. So he just set this up, what we're about to look at, by saying, Jesus has forgiven you so much. Jesus has done so much so that you could stand before God and be completely righteous, completely forgiven, all your sins taken care of. Think about how much Jesus has done for you. That's where he just left it. Think about what Jesus has done for you. Then, look at verse one. Therefore, because of what Jesus has done for you. Be imitators of God. Copy God. Mimic God. It's literally the word to mimic. 
to follow the example of God. Why? Well, because you are beloved children. When I run across the word beloved, it sounds like the word behold, or it sounds like a, another Bible word that's like, oh, I don't really know what that means, but it's, you know, it's there. I know, I know it's used of people like, oh, dearly beloved, we're gathered here today for the matrimony. Like it sounds like, you know, some official language, but here's what the word beloved means. It's from the root word. You can already see it in your text, love. It just means someone who's been loved. If you've been loved, then guess what? You're beloved. That's what it means. Uh, you know, I have a beloved daughter, which means my daughter that I love so much. And I have a beloved son, Jordan, and I love him so much. So it just means that as a child, you're loved, which again, kind of goes without saying. But, you know, realistically, not every kid is that loved by their parents. So he's saying, look, this is, this is a big deal. You're loved by who? Well, by God. God is our father, and we're beloved children. Now, that might seem obvious to you. And you might say, well, yeah, of course, we're, you know, we're sons of God and daughters of God, and that makes sense. But you know that's not how we start out. You know the book of Ephesians says you're not starting out in your life as a son of God. You start out as a son of wrath. That's what Ephesians 2, 1 and 2 says. It says we start out walking in our sin and living as children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So for us to say, oh, well, obviously we should live like God because God loves us and we're his children, that's not an obvious thing. It's really not, because that's not how we all start out. We don't start out living for God. We don't start out as children of God. We all start out children of wrath, deserving of God's wrath for our sin. But it says, because you're a beloved child now, because you've been adopted, because of all that Jesus has done for you, you need to imitate God. And now, this is just the first thing he's going to tell us to imitate God in. The rest of this chapter is actually going to tell us more ways that we can imitate God. But there's only one, and I haven't even mentioned what it is. But you're going to see it right there in verse number two. Look at how... God wants us to imitate him. The first and foremost thing is and walk in love. Love. That's the thing he's telling us to imitate, first of all. He's going to talk about his holiness later. He's going to talk about discernment and knowing the truth after that. But the first and foremost thing that he says, imitate God in this, is that you would love like God loves. That your heart would go out to people in a similar way that God's heart went out to us. That you would sacrifice for others like Jesus sacrificed for you. Love. That's primary. His walk in love. Walk means uh, continual pattern of life. We already saw the word walk in uh, chapter 4, verse 17. It said, don't walk like the Gentiles. That doesn't mean, you know, that you have a certain gait in your walk. You know what the word gait is? It's like the way that you walk. You ever see people walk and you're like, they have a very distinctive walk. Maybe they lean to their left side or something like that. He's not talking about the style in which you march, Okay. He's not saying that. Walk is a, is a word that refers to the pattern of someone's life, right? And we saw that again in chapter two where it says non-Christians, and they even said all of us, started out walking in our sin. That doesn't mean that you're walking and leaving footprints in something called sin, right? Not like sand, like walking on dirt or walking on, it's not that. It's that the pattern of these people's lives, these Christians at the beginning of their life, in the beginning of your life, in the beginning of my life, the pattern was walking in sin, doing things in sin, doing sometimes even good things from a sinful heart. So he says, you used to walk in sin, you used to walk like the Gentiles, here's what you need to walk in. One word, love. Can someone look at your life and your actions and all your external things, and could someone probe the inside of your heart and your mind and find love there? That's the question. It's an important question because as Christians, we, um, we oftentimes take it as a gift. and like, oh yeah, we're supposed to love one another. Yeah, but do you love one another? 
do you love on the inside, from your heart, the people God has put in your life? Do you really love them? Remember at the end of the Gospel of John, when Peter denied Jesus three times, Jesus comes to Peter and asks him one question three different times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And really the answer to that defines Peter's entire life, that he does love Jesus. Even though he failed in the past, he does love, so he's going to succeed in the future in following God. It's a question I want you to ask yourself. Do you love? Do you love on the inside? Do you love on the outside? All right, so what does love on the outside look like? Well, look what he says next. He says, walk in love as Christ loved us. So Jesus, and what he did, he defines the standard of love we're talking about. We're not saying, hey, be a romantic person who writes love songs. He's not saying, hey, just, you know, write a really good Valentine's Day card, right? It's, you know, it's Valentine's Day this week, walk in love. So just, you know, make sure you riz it up with everybody and you just, you know, just like every person you talk to, you know. It's like a word sneak. Get the word riz in the sermon. No, uh, walk in love. What does it mean? Well, it means that you love in a way that Jesus loved. He defines it. Look, look what it says next. It says, as Christ loved us. I really got you unsettled. Using the word riz there, I'm sorry. <laughs> look how he says it. He says, what did Jesus do to love us? It says, as Christ loved us, look at it in your, in your Bibles. It says, and gave himself up for us. So Jesus sacrificed his life, and not just when he died, but his entire life. When he lived as a human being, what he was doing was fulfilling all righteousness. When he said, no, I'm not going to sin, and yes, I'm going to obey my parents. Do you know why he did that? Because you needed that on your account. In order for you to go to heaven, God has to look at someone who grew up and who said yes to his parents every time and who rejected sin every time. So every time Jesus fought against temptation and won, he was doing it for you because you needed his righteousness. He walked in love. He gave himself up for us. And when he gave himself up for us, look what it also says. It was like he was giving himself up for God as well. It was like an offering to God. It says, a fragrant offering, which literally means smelling good. Uh, so I'm not saying Jesus smelled good uh, physically, like deodorant smelling good. Hey, there's a lot of imagery here, walking and smelling and things like that. What is a fragrant offering? Well, that comes from the Old Testament where God had all these uh, different sacrifices that he said, this is a fragrant offering to me. And he'd have all these different sacrifices, right? Uh, for different types of things. But I don't know if you know this, but there's times in the Bible that God says, your sacrifices smell bad to me. They stink to me. And when was that? Was that when they like offered the wrong kind of animal? No. It was when they did religious things in a heart of unholiness or not out of love for God, out of merely a sense of duty, but not from a genuine heart that wants to honor and serve God. So he says, when Jesus loved us and gave himself up for us, it was a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. God looked at it and said, I'm pleased with that. I love that. I'm satisfied with that. This text says that the way you and I need to live our lives is constant love and constant sacrifice. And you know, when God looks at you, when you walk in love, do you know what he thinks? I'm pleased with that. That's my person. I'm proud of that person. Hebrews 11 talks about how God is not ashamed to be called some people's God. It's like, well, who is that? I want to be like that. Those are the people who lived in faith and obeyed God, specifically in this area of love. Now, love is such a big term in the Bible. 
we can't talk about everything there is to talk about love, but suffice it to say this big idea this morning, the big thing I want all of us to take away is we need to make a choice to love. Love is not an emotional response that we have to people, although sometimes emotions are involved and responses are involved, but love is a choice. Love is an action. It starts in your heart, right? So it's not simply like a, a feeling towards somebody. You can start there, um, or maybe it doesn't start there. Sometimes it ends there, but it's a choice that you make. I'm going to choose to do good to someone. Um, for example, let's say you're an upperclassman, and there's a freshman that doesn't have many friends. Uh, for you to take that person under your wing, show them care, and show them love, um, what it starts out with is a choice. I'm going to be good to this person. I'm going to be kind to this person. I'm going to be loving to this person. And then you choose that, and then you do good to that person. That's what love is. With your parents, how do you love your parents? It's when you choose to say, I'm not just responding in love if I feel like I'm loved back, but I'm saying, I honor them, I respect them, I'm going to do good to them, I'm going to be obedient to them, I'm going to talk well of them, and I'm choosing to do the same thing. It's not any different with romantic love, by the way. That's how it starts. Falling into love is is a euphemism, that uh, is an unchristian euphemism. I understand the feeling. I know what it, that feels like. But my point is, love is a choice. I'm going to choose to love this person. I'm going to choose to commit to this person. This text is telling us we need to choose to love other people. And the specifics we'll talk about in a minute. But that's the first idea. You need to choose to love other people. And when you think about it, choosing to love other people, I hope you ask the question, why? Why should I do that? If I really push you today and say, hey, you need to love people, the logical response is, why do I, why do I have to do that? Because, you know, not everyone's loving to me. You said, you know, do good to people. I, a lot of people are bad to me. Why do I have to love? He starts in verse 1 by saying, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. He gives us the reason there when he says beloved children. The point is, we're supposed to imitate God because God loved you, because you have been shown so much love. If you're a Christian, I'd love for you to write this point number one down. Grasp how much you've been loved. Grasp how much you have been loved. You have to understand what Jesus did for you, or you will never love other people. You might tolerate other people. You might be kind to them for your own advantage. You might even be considered a nice person. You're friendly, maybe. But that's not the same as love. You'll never love other people unless you grasp how much God has loved you. said love is defined by what Jesus did. The rest of the New Testament says that. I'd love for you to write this down. Romans 5, 6 through 8. Romans 5, 6 through 8 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. You can imagine that, right? You might spend your life, you might even die for somebody else if you really cared about them. But they have to be a good person. They'd have to be someone that like loves you back, right? Well, here's what this text says. Jesus died for you when you did not love him. Jesus died for you when you were an enemy of him. Do you realize how big of a statement that is? That while you were running away from him, while you were going in the opposite direction, before you ever reached out to God, he died for us. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Grasp how much you've been loved. God loved you when you were unlovable. 
God loved you, not seeing something worthy of love, right? Because you guys will pick people that you want to be, you know, your, your romantic, you know, boyfriend or girlfriend, and, you know, one day husband and wife. You'll pick people who you find something admirable about. Right? Ladies, you want a guy who's strong, who's, who's sturdy. I don't, know, I don't know what you want. Sturdy sounds like uh, overweight. That's not what I mean. I just mean like, and he can be that too. That's fine. But, uh, I mean, he, you want him to be like, you know, a leader, right? Right? And respected. You want people to look at him and like look up to him, right? Physically, right? Because, you know, short kings out there. You know, I don't... You, Guys, when you look for, for a girlfriend, you want her to be pretty, right? You want her to be nice. You want her to be funny. You want her to, you know, be able to hang with the jokes that you tell. You want, you want someone that is lovable back, right? Um, you wouldn't willingly go and, you know, pick somebody who doesn't like you, right? Maybe, maybe you would. Um, but they have to be really pretty. <laughs> Here's the point here. Here's what I'm trying to say. God's word is overtly clear, without a shadow of a doubt, God showed love for you when there was nothing in you that merited that love. There was nothing. It wasn't that God thought you were cute. It wasn't that God thought that you were really nice. None of that. It was that he saw you were in trouble and you needed help. That's why God loved you. Grasp how much you've been loved. Listen to this. It's, it's so strong in the book of 1 John chapter 4 that he says, you're not even a Christian if you don't show love. Not that like you have to love a certain amount to become a Christian. He just says it's impossible for a Christian not to start showing this love. Listen to this, 1 John 4, 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So John says, this is how God demonstrated and showed for you and for me and for everybody all throughout history. This is what love looks like. And he sent his son to show us that. Verse 10 says, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That means payment. That's what love is, that God came to live and die in our place. Here's our main problem, I think, when it comes to all of this, understanding point number one, doing all this stuff. Our main problem is that we don't assume that we owe love to other people. Because if I said, all right, let's start thinking about the people in your life that you need to show love to, like your parents, your siblings, you might think, okay, well, I owe love to them and probably, you know, to my parents and probably people who love me back. But God's word goes even further and says, no, 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 you owe a certain amount of love to everyone you interact with. And if you start to really think about the people in your life, a lot of red flags come up, right? Well, that doesn't mean I have to love them. I mean, it doesn't mean I have to love that person because they were really rude to me and they don't like, well, you don't understand, they don't like me. Listen to this. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, Jesus says to the crowds, he says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be like sons of your father who's in heaven. You act like God when you love people that don't love you back. When you're kind to people and gentle with people who treated you wrong and have been bad to you, yet you still go over the top to make them feel cared for and welcome, you're being like God. You're imitating God. Why? Because God does that. The next phrase in that text says, for God makes his son, his son, rise on the evil and the good. Right, you went outside, um, 
It's not very warm today. A lot of wind, right, this weekend. It was really hot last week, right? Got up to like high 70s. Then it got cold all of a sudden. Do you know every time the sun goes up, whose sun is that? Well, it's God's sun, right? Not S-O-N, but S-U-N. It's his star. He made it. He made it the exact right temperature and the exact right distance from earth so that our earth could be habitable. He made the moon exactly the right size it needed to be and the exact distance away so that they even appear to us to be the same size when they're not. It's God's sun that comes up every day. When you, you know, eat the Krispy Kreme donuts afterwards and you chomp on them, well, that Krispy Kreme came from the grain that was grown by what? God's sun. Everything comes back to that. And this is what God's word says. He makes his son come up on good people and bad people. God's favorite people in the world and God's least favorite, so to speak. The enemies of God. His son comes up on both of them. So God is kind to people that are not kind to him. Whether they repent or not. God shows a a great amount of love, even to people who don't love him back. Our main problem is we think, I don't owe love to other people. Well, yeah, you might feel that way. But recognize that God's word says that he loves people who he owes nothing to. Furthermore, you got people in your life that you think, I don't owe love to this person. I don't love to that person. Um, I mean, I would love Jesus and I would love God because they're perfect. And think about all they've done for me. But it's really hard for me to love the people in my life that they don't do anything good for me. In fact, some of them are really hard. They make my life worse. Okay, Listen to this. When Jesus told a parable in Matthew 25, verse 40, At the end of this parable, he's explaining how one day when God evaluates our lives, he's going to look at us and say, hey, you visited me in prison. You gave water to me. You did all these acts of service for me. And in this parable, they say to the king, like, we never did that for you. You're the king. You never needed any of that help. And the king says, well, as you did it for one of these, you did it for me. Here's what that means. When you show love to the people in your life that are hard, When you show love to your little siblings and when you share things with your siblings, you understand? Sharing the things that you have with your siblings. And you don't have to. And it's yours and it's not theirs. When you do good to them and when you love the people at your school and you care for people when they're hurting, it's like you're doing it to God himself. Jesus says that very clearly. That's Matthew 25, 40. It's like you did it to him. The scary part of that passage is at the end of it, The king says to some people, you didn't show me care. You didn't give me water. You didn't visit me in prison. And they say, when did you ever need that? And he says, well, when you didn't do it to one of these people, you were neglecting me. You didn't do it to me. We certainly owe God love. Why? Well, because he's loved us so much. Write this passage down. 1 John 3, 1 to 3. If you want to know God's love for you, and you want to start being motivated to love other people, you've got to start with God and his love. Listen to this, 1 John 3. It says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. Have you ever stopped, paused, and thought about what it cost God to show you love? You ever thought about that? You ever thought about what Jesus had to go through on your behalf? that he could have avoided if he chose not to love you. He could have avoided it. What kind of deprivation did he go through? What kind of fasting did he do while he was on earth? What kind of hard times did he have? How did he get physically hurt even as he approached his death? What kind of suffering and flogging and beating did Jesus take so that you didn't have to? See what kind of love Father has for us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. 
He doesn't say, and this is where a lot of people go wrong. They think, okay, well, maybe one day, if I do a certain number of things, then God will call me a child. He doesn't say that. He says, if you've been loved by God, if you've understood your problem, if you've believed in Christ, if you're in Christ, you are as much a child of God as you will ever be. You're in the family. Not you will be when you go to heaven. No, you're in it right now. He says, and so we are. We're children of God right now. The reason why the world doesn't know us as children of God is that they didn't know him, Jesus, as the son of God. Beloved, which is just a fancy word that says, hey, if you're, people that are loved, hey, listen up. You're loved a lot. Listen, listen up. We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. So we're gonna be even better in the future, but, when, but we know that when he appears, when Jesus appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him, so if you hope right now in Jesus, you put your focus and attention on Christ right now, it says, thus purifies himself as he is pure. So focusing on Jesus right now doesn't make you a child of God, but if you're a child of God, focusing on Jesus and his love, what does that do? It purifies you cleanses you, makes you love more, makes you care more about the people in your small group when you think how Jesus took initiative and loved you. This kind of meditation on God's word, God, what God has done for you should warm your heart, should make you sensitive towards people. See, a lot of us have like hard hearts towards people because um, you feel like I've been wrong, so I need to put up these walls and be very just I need to stay angry and upset at other people. This kind of thinking about how God went above and beyond to love you, I hope that kind of melts your heart of stone. Because it says, be imitators of God as beloved children. That will never change. If you're a Christian, that will never change how much God has loved you. When he forgave you of your sins, this is a crazy thought, but it's a helpful one to think through occasionally. You know, if God accepted you, and if God forgave your sins, he forgave all your sins. What do I mean by that? We're stuck, you know, in our time, our timeline, right? You can't see in the future. You can't be 100 years from now and 100 years ago at the same time. God is atemporal, which means he stands outside of time. Right? Like we kind of, you know, going down the timeline of our lives. God's outside of time. The Bible says a thousand years ago is like yesterday as it's past. So he doesn't experience time in the same way. He's transcendent and stands over time. Which means if he forgave you your sins and he embraced you and he called you a child of God, let's say when you were 14 years old. If he did that and he forgave you, do you know that he didn't just forgive your zero to 13 year old sins? He sees your life in its entirety. And if he ever embraces you, he embraced you forever. That when you repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus, what you trusted in Jesus for was complete atonement, perfect satisfaction of God's wrath for what you will do when you're 35 years old and what you'll do when you're 61. That's a thought we just don't often think about. That's why I see what kind of love the Father has shown for us. Do you see that this obligates us to love? There's not a person in this room who is genuinely saved can, who can say, ah, but I don't have to love. I'm exempt. If God's loved you, you're not exempt. If God's loved me, I'm not exempt. That's why back in Ephesians 5, it says, and walk in love. The pattern of your lifestyle should be love. Point number two, 
it's kind of heart, hits at the heart of what we want today. I want you to choose to do everything out of love. I think that starts to grasp what uh, Ephesians 5, 2 says when it says walk in love. The idea is that you would choose to do what you do this week out of a heart of love. That love would be your motivation. Unlike how you used to walk. You used to walk in your sin, Ephesians 2. You used to walk like the Gentiles, which just means like the rest of the world. He says, if you're a Christian, don't walk that way anymore. That's why like the last couple weeks, we've been talking hardcore about the things we got to stop, the sins that we got to give up. And that was, you know, chapter four, verses 25 to, to 32, especially like a lot of, there's that big list of don't steal and don't, don't do wrong. And, you know, don't lie, all those things. He says, put away. But now this is the main thing that needs to characterize your life is love. Walk in love. The pattern of your life. Walking implies a pattern. So when it says walk in love, it implies this continuous pattern of living. See, a lot of us would probably find it easy to do a good thing once, to like show love once. And you can think of times in the past, or maybe you've sacrificed for somebody, right? Or, or you served at something that was really hard and outside of your comfort zone, and you did it. You're like, I did it, right? That's a good thing. Walking in love is more than just saying, I did it once. Walking in love means that the pattern of your life needs to be characterized by day-by-day day sacrifice, day-by-day day putting others first, day-by-day day choosing to care about the other person's good before your own. That's a lot harder. See, some of us would say, oh, I would take a bullet for my family. I would, oh, man, you know, if there was someone who ever broke into our house, man, I would just take him down, and I would, I, and I would die for my family. Okay, uh, will you take out the trash for your mom? Will you clean your room? after she said it like 30 times, maybe after one time? Will you fill out the college applications that your dad told you to do? Will you finish your homework on time so that you can spend it with your family like they want you to? Can you share your clothes with your little sister? Ladies. <laughs> I saw one of you look at your friends like, what? If you have a sister, you know, my, my wife has three sisters. She's the middle. They always share clothes. Always sharing each other's shoes and stuff. They all you know, made them the same size, I guess, right? So um, that's really hard. It wasn't hard for me uh, because I never share clothes with my sister. I probably share clothes with my brother sometimes, I guess, if I had to. Not shoes, though. Shoes are like awful, you know. They shouldn't be, though. Uh, my brother has bigger feet than me, so it didn't, it didn't matter. Um, here's the point. Be willing for the people in your life to make it a pattern of self-giving. Not just once, not just twice, but make it a pattern. Here's why this is really important, because, and this is just a, a truth that comes from the rest of Scripture, that your love needs to grow. It needs to, like, next year, it needs to be better than it is now. And in five years, it needs to be bigger. Here's why. Because your complaints and reasons to not love people in the church, that list will grow exponentially. Here's what I mean. The longer you live as a Christian, the more you're going to be wronged and gossiped about and maybe slandered. And people will say things and do things that bug you or are rude to you. And that will happen more and more just because like, time goes on and it's just more opportunity for that to happen. Hopefully it doesn't happen increasingly, but, you know, think about it. In 10 years, how many mean things are people going to say to you in the course of the next 10 years? I mean, probably a lot, right? 
hopefully not that much, but probably a lot. Here's my point. Your love needs to grow at a pace that exceeds what people are doing for, that are, are wrong to you. And here's why I can say that from the Bible. First Peter chapter four, verse eight says this. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Earnest means intense, right? Love one another intensely. Keep loving one another intensely. Are you good at loving people? Some of you are. Keep growing in your love. I, I mentioned your parents and your siblings. And you think, I do love them. I love them with all my heart. Okay, here's what the Bible says. Keep loving them intensely, more intensely. Since love covers a multitude of sins. It's like God knows that people will sin against you. And if you do not have love in your heart for people, you will react poorly. You'll react in an ungodly way. But when people sin against you and you have love in your heart and your love is growing and growing for them, well, oftentimes cover a multitude of sins. If you want some specifics on this, let's turn in our Bibles to the left real quick to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I want you to see what this looks like. We've talked about love, 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 but you know, what does it actually mean to love? What does it look like? What are some like practical points? Well, 1 Corinthians 13 is really helpful. This chapter is all about love. And the problem is this church that Paul was writing to was not very loving. Chapters 1 to 3 are all about how they were breaking up into different groups in the church because they, they liked different teachers, different pastors. Like, oh, I follow this person. Oh, I follow this person. And they would divide and not be friends anymore because they had preferences that they put above each other. Chapter 5, 6, and 7 are about uh, there were some people in the church that were doing sin and they did not love each other enough to call that sin out. And they wouldn't do it in chapter 5. Chapter 8, 9, and 10 of this book, 1 Corinthians, Paul writes to them because some of them were eating foods that offended other people in the church. And like, I don't care. I get to do whatever I want to do. My Christian liberty trumps my responsibility to care for you. And Paul says that's wrong. Chapter 11, some of them were eating communion, like that's the, the meal we eat at church, right? The, the bread and the cup, right? They were eating it. Some of them, the, the wealthier people, were bringing a ton of stuff to these church services. Then they were eating all the food, leaving none left over for the people that were in the working class who had to show up later. They didn't have any more left for them. They were selfish. This church was not loving each other. In fact, in chapter 12, he says, you guys need to view yourself as one spiritual body, this church. You all play parts in it, but you're together in this. Listen to chapter 13, verse one. After all that buildup, Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 13, one. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but if I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. That means... He says, I could have the perfect sermon that I come in and, and teach you guys. Remember, he's saying, imagine if I show up when I have just the perfect words to say and I can speak in amazing ways and I can impress you with my words. If I said those words and I didn't have love in my heart, it would be like a, a noisy gong, like a symbol. And what they would often do in those, those times at the temples to these false gods, they would clang these symbols together and be really loud. He says, my Christian-y words be just as bad as the, the pagan idolatry if it didn't come from a heart of love. Verse two, it says, if I have all prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but if I have not love, I'm nothing. He says, I could, I could know my Bible better than you. 
I could know my theology. I could know all this stuff. But if I did all that and I didn't love, it would all be a waste. In fact, not it would be a waste. He says, I would be nothing. Some of us think because we know a lot or we've said a lot of good things that, man, I'm something. He says, if you do that without love, he says, you're nothing. Next verse, he says, and if I give away all I have, which is a cool little term, which means to parcel out all that you own. So like if you took everything that belonged to you, in business you'd say, if I liquidated all my assets, if I sold everything that I could sell, if I sold my car and I sold my furniture and I listed all my clothes on Facebook Marketplace and I got rid of all my shoes and I got rid of everything in my closet and all my technology and all my computer, if I gave away all that I had, everything, and if I delivered up my body to be burned, say I went to the, to the place of death for Jesus. He says, if I did all that and I have not love, I gain nothing. This is huge. You have the potential of wasting your entire Christian life if you don't understand love. You have the potential of wasting a lot of good opportunities you have to show care for others if you don't love. I don't want to waste those. What does it look like? Look at verse 4. He describes it. Check it out in your Bibles. Love. Verse 4, 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Love is patient. Patient means having a long fuse, slow to anger like God is. Love is kind. Kind doesn't just mean nice or friendly. It's not just talking about a disposition. Kind comes from the same root word that we get, charity. The idea is, is giving. Kindness is like giving to others, not just physically or financially, but, but showing a, a type of love for others. Love does not envy. If you love someone, you don't look at what they have and get jealous about it. I should have that. I should be accepted at that school. I should have that person. I should have that relationship. Love does not do that. Love doesn't boast. Let's say you are the one who has what other people want. You don't take what you have and boast about it and brag and say, look how great I am. Look how I made. Love doesn't do that. It's not arrogant. It doesn't think highly of itself. And it's not rude. It doesn't disparage other people. Make them seem less than. A lot of times what we do is we elevate ourselves. And if someone's telling a story, we want to go in and tell our story and say how great what we're doing is. Love doesn't do that. Love doesn't insist on its own way. It doesn't say, no, we have to eat here. And no, oh, we have to go here. And no, we have to do this and we have to do this and we have to do it my way, my way, my way, my way. Love doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable. Irritable means like quick to ang- anger. Like if I asked you about like what do you got going on at school this week, if I talked to you after the service and said, you know, what do you got at school this week? What are your assignments? You're like, oh yeah, I got this and this and this. If I called you at three in the morning, tomorrow morning, and asked you, hey, hey, quick, 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 what are your assignments? What do you, tell me right now. I'm assuming I'd get an irritable version of you, right? <laughs> You'd be like, dude, stop, what? what? Why are you calling me at three? Why do you care? Hold on, what? Why do you care about my, you'd be irritable, okay? Here's what it's saying. Some of us live in that sense of like, we're irritable. We're, we're quick to be upset, right? It's like being hangry all the time, right? That's what irritable is. Love is not irritable. Love is not resentful. You see the word resentful? That, that means um, it doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It doesn't make a list, whether physically a list or a list in your mind of all the ways that you've been wronged. Some of us do that. Some of us are like close, like, oh, you want to be kind to somebody, but then you pull back because you bring up your list in your mind of all the bad things they've done to you. And then you replay what they said to you. 
so that you can rile yourself up and get more mad at them, and then you go down. That's, so love doesn't do that. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. Right? If someone sins, you don't say, yes, I'm so glad they sinned, like I knew they were bad. It doesn't do that. But it rejoices with the truth. It rejoices whether it be a friend or a foe who does what's right, you rejoice in that. Verse number seven, look at this. It says, love bears all things. To bear means to like, it's the idea of you're really strong and you can come underneath a heavy load. Love bears up all things. Love believes all things. It gives people the benefit of the doubt. You love them. They say they didn't do something. They say they didn't say something. You believe them. You say, okay, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Love hopes all things. It hopes that there's gonna be reconciliation and restoration in relationships. Love hopes and trusts that, hey, you're gonna do the best you can. Love hopes that. And love endures all things. You can put up with a lot if you love somebody. See how this is just so like, countercultural because the world will say stuff like this. Um, you know, you need to put up a lot of boundaries in your life so that, you know, you don't give too much of your time to other people. You, know, you need to put up a lot of boundaries so that you don't, I mean, you need to care about yourself first. Like you need to love yourself first. It's like the, the illustration of the, when you're on the plane, you got to put your oxygen mask on and then, then so that you can care for other people. The world says that to you. Just love yourself so that you can love other people. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says that God loves you and because God loves you, you can love other people. Don't worry about yourself. Right? God's going to take care of you. Go to God. Receive love from God. And guess what? God's going to bring people in your life around you that love you, that show you the love of Christ. And even if he doesn't, a lot of people who don't get a lot of people in their life that love them. God loves them. God loves you. It's countercultural to have this perspective of wanting to be self-giving, but that's exactly what all these things in 1 Corinthians 13, all of them are about that, which leads us back to our text, which says that Jesus gave himself up for us. And when he did that, it was a fragrant offering to God. God looked at it and he was satisfied. I want you to think about love that way. Love is the self-giving thing and God is pleased when you love people. Point number three is this. I want you to give yourself away for others to honor God. Give yourself away. That's what this idea of love is. He gave himself up which means he gave himself away, his time, his effort. He was even physically harmed for the sake of other people. Again, I don't think you're probably gonna have that same opportunity for other people to love, but sometimes you will. You might break your back for people. You might use your hands and your feet to serve other people. Give yourself away. That is, that is another countercultural idea, right? Like, no, no, don't give yourself away. You know, enjoy your time for you. Don't give your, t- don't give your time serving people because you know, you'll never get that time back. It's for you, it's for you, it's for you. That is a, that is a lie from hell, basically. Um, that your time's all about you. That is unbiblical. It's not true. Don't waste your summer serving. Don't, don't, you know, don't miss those opportunities with your friends when you know, you're with your grandparents and you know. Sometimes you don't want to have dinner with your grandparents or go to the house. No, no, you should just hang out with your friends because this is you time. That is a lie. Love looks like giving yourself away. Jesus came to die. He gave himself away. He gave himself away in his life. And God's people always are wanting to be people who give themselves away. There's another lie that you'll hear uh, that I thought through this week that you'll hear often. Even sometimes Christians will tell you this, and I I don't believe this is true that, you know, your youth is for you, you know. Your high school time, is, it's for you. 
don't serve, don't, no, make, make it about you. Um, you know what God's most faithful people in all the Bible spent their youth doing? Kind of remind you of some people in the Bible. What was Daniel doing when he was 16, 17, 18? He was exiled from his homeland, brought to the place called Babylon. In Daniel chapter 1, he was standing in a foreign official court, standing up for God, not eating the food, doing exactly what he needed to do. His friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, young men, saying, I'm not going to bow to this idol, standing up, getting thrown into the fiery furnace and saved by God in the process. What was David doing? King David, when he was 15 or 16, says he was tending the sheep, but he also says that he was writing songs to the Lord. He was this poet who wasn't just a poet, he was a warrior. As a 15 or 16, 17-year-old, he fought Goliath and he stood, faced a giant, and said that God this day will deliver you into my hand. He spent his youth serving God. What about a lady in the New Testament named Mary? There was a 14 or 15-year-old girl named Mary who received a message directly from an angel that she would raise the Messiah. Right, you 17 years old, right? Some of you ladies are 17, 16? Imagine you were raising a toddler named Jesus. Not Jesus, but Jesus, right? Imagine that. And he was God's son, the Messiah. Bummer, you had to waste your youth on serving. No, you'd say, that's the, that's the biggest privilege I could have, right? Now again, I don't know all that God has in store for you. But I know if you spend your youth serving God, you won't regret it. I know for me and my testimony, it was helpful that God had me in a place where I would, was able to serve God in my youth, and I don't regret it. In fact, what I do regret is the things that I didn't do to love and the, things that I, the conversations I didn't have with people to reach out. I think even me, I was working in the church and doing a lot of things when I was at your age and beyond. I, kinda, I went to Bible school and did all these things. I, what I regret when I look back is not, oh man, I can't believe I was tied down and having to serve people. That's not what I regret. I regret not doing a better job, not loving more. I think you'll find the same thing. Paul put it like this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 17. He uses that imagery of an offering again, but now talking about his life. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. That's an allusion to him dying. He says, even if I die for the sake of serving you guys, I'd do it over again. I'll rejoice with you and me. We should rejoice. Paul said this to the Corinthians, a church that was not as well behaved as the Philippians. 2 Corinthians 12, 15. Paul says, I would most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. I'd give up my time. I'd give up my after. Like, that's what Paul says to them. And that's the mentality that we need to adopt. That's what it looks like to walk in love, to give yourself away. To say, I've got people in my life that have special needs and special care. Well, then I'm going to give special attention and special love to them. I've got people in my life that, that really would like to spend time with me. Like, and I mentioned, like your grandparents, like your parents even, believe it or not, they probably would want to spend time with you. And you might have to sacrifice time with your friends to spend time with your grandparents or your parents. But you can do it out of love. What does God think when he sees you go above and beyond to love people when it's hard and inconvenient for you. 
this text says it's like a fragrant offering to God. It's like you offering this amazing offering, and God says, I'm so pleased with that person. I'm so glad that they did that. I'm so glad that she said that. I'm so glad that she did that. The world says love yourself first. Set up boundaries so that you don't serve people too much. The world says make sure that you don't love people enough because you might get hurt because they might stab you in the back. That's, that second part's true, but the response of not opening up your heart to people is not. Listen to what Jesus says in John 15. John 15, 12, he says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. The greatest kind of love that you can show is giving yourself away. That doesn't mean you dying on behalf of somebody, obviously, if something happened, yeah, stepping up and being heroic, that's, that's fine, but that's not what it usually looks like for us. What it usually looks like for us is having longer conversations than we want to with people, listening to people's hurt, helping them, directing them with the truth of God's word. It oftentimes looks like you going above and beyond to include people in your friend group that you don't exactly feel comfortable with, but because they need to be included somewhere and they need to be shown love. That's the kind of sacrifices we're talking about. You being an actually uh, godly child to your parents with this short, short amount of time you have left. You being a good sibling just for the, you only have a couple more years left in the home. Making the most of it. That's what God says he's pleased with. Our sacrifices will oftentimes be real and tangible. They might even be financial or physical. We don't want to rule that out. We don't just want to talk about time. Because listen to this. 1 John three sixteen says, by this we know love, that he, that's Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Not for Jesus, but for his people. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? How can we claim we love God when we have what we need to take care of the people in our life, but when we choose not to? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Yeah, we should be kind in our words. Yeah, we should be considerate with the way that we talk to people, but it only starts, that's not the extent of it. It needs to go beyond that to our deeds or actual actions. This language of a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God is not just used of Jesus' sacrifice. It's also used of other people's sacrifice. Listen to what Paul said in Philippians 4. 18. He says, I received full payment and more, which means these Philippians gave this like generous financial gift to him. And he says, hey, you guys gave me something so generous. I can't believe it. Super generous. I'm well supplied. I've received everything I need and more from Epaphroditus, the gifts that you sent to me. So they gave him this care package, basically. He says that care package is a fragrant offering and a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. What do they give him? Like food and parchments and coins? They just gave him money, right? Like, well, that's not very spiritual. He says, well, because you guys did it out of love and you supplied a very important need that he had, he said, that gift that you gave to me, it was like a sacrifice to God. Hebrews 13, 16 says something very similar. It says, don't neglect to do good and share what you have. So there's going to be things that you have and and rides that you can give and and time that you can spend that you have and you could give it away to other people. He says, don't neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. 
I understand because you've never gone to a altar and had someone, you know, slit the throat of you, the lamb that you brought. We don't have a real good understanding of sacrifice. And you don't, you know, see some burnt offering where it's a barbecue uh, of the offering that was given to God. We don't know what that smells like. We don't know what that looks like. We never experienced that. But I think we can understand kind of what he's saying. It's a pleasing aroma. It smells good to God. You know what stinks to God? When you have the world's goods and you can't help and you say, I'm not going to. You know what stinks to God? When you close your heart to including that other person or loving that other person or forgiving somebody. That smells bad, so to speak, to God. What smells good? Well, the forgiveness that we're talking about. The sharing that we're talking about. You know, all of us who have kids know that our kids imitate us and some of it's good and some of it's bad, right? Um, But there's a kind of imitation in my daughter that I do really like to see. One of the things that she does is if Jordan's crying, if he's like, you know, sitting on the couch crying or he wants a bottle or something, one of the really cute things that Eden does that we like is she goes up to him, puts her hand like on his chest or on his stomach and like puts her head on his head, right? She's like trying to calm him down or something, right? She's trying to show him some type of love. Yesterday I was burping Jordan, right? He was kind of coughing. So I started burping him and, um, Eden was sitting right next to me and she just like has this big grin and she starts like burping him on the back just like I'm doing. She's trying to be helpful. Like to me, what's the like sweetest or best kind of imitation? It's not when she does the coffee like us. It's not that she just waves. It's not just that she shakes her head like me. What I really like to see is the, the love that she shows. That's the kind of imitation that matters most to me. That's the kind of imitation that matters most to God when you love like he loves. Let's pray and ask God to help us with that. God, we're thankful for your example of love in Christ. We're thankful for your plan of redemption that you planned from before the foundations of the world to bring us into your family, to have us be redeemed, loved children of you. We recognize this morning and just corporately confess we don't deserve your love in the slightest, but you have been over the top in your goodness to us pray that we'd identify the people in our lives that are hard to love, that all the practical little things and outworkings of our love would just be very clear for us this week, that you'd help us do it. Pray that we'd imitate you more and more. I know this is just the first part of what you're going to say about imitating you, but it's the most important. It's the primary one that we love. Pray that we'd grow in our earnest and intense love for one another. You know, love covers a multitude of sins. We're thankful that in Christ our sins have been covered by his sacrifice on our behalf. We pray that we would be willing to make more sacrifices. We'd identify exactly what those things are this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.